from BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast, is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste, or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products, because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. There's a lot happening these days, but I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. I was a pilot with the Tuskegee Airmen from start to finish. We were flying close escort with the bombers and we did stay with them on over the targets. When you realize that that fire they're putting up is meant to knock you out of the sky, it gets your attention. The success that these two units met, that the people who were in it would have a firm place in the United States Air Force. On this episode of Newt's World, at the State of the Union on Tuesday, February 4th, President Trump honored legendary aviator and one of the last surviving Tuskegee Airmen, Brigadier General Charles McGee. McGee turned 100 years old on December 7th. In his speech, Trump said, after more than 130 combat missions in World War II, McGee came back to a country still struggling for civil rights and went on to serve America in Korea and Vietnam. President Trump said, General McGee, our nation salutes you. I was inspired by General McGee and thought we should devote an episode to the Tuskegee Airmen, the only African-American pilots in combat in the Army Air Forces during World War II. The Tuskegee Airmen overcame segregation and prejudice to become one of the most highly respected fighter groups of World War II. They proved that African-Americans could fly and maintain sophisticated combat aircraft. The Tuskegee Airmen's achievements, together with the men and women who supported them, paved the way for full integration of the U.S. military. I am pleased to welcome my guest, Dr. Daniel Hallman, Supervisory Historian at the Air Force Historical Research Agency, Maxwell Air Force Base, retired. 
So what drew you to them out of all the different areas you've looked at in the Air Force? I started my Tuskegee Airmen research in 2006. That's when I wrote my first article about the Tuskegee Airmen. And I was focusing then on the number of aerial victory credits they scored during World War II. I was a member of the Society for Military History, and I decided to do an article about one of the phases of research that I was engaged in at the Air Force Historical Research Agency at Maxwell Air Force Base, and that was keeping track of the aerial victory credits of all the Air Force pilots. And I decided to focus on a unique group or group of squadrons, and that was the 332nd Fighter Group, the Tuskegee Airmen. The Tuskegee Airmen were the first black pilots in American military service. What was the impetus to create the Tuskegee Airmen before they went to Tuskegee? Was it part of the Army Air Corps? It was probably mainly a promise that Franklin D. Roosevelt made in 1940 when he was running for his third term for president. He promised that he would allow the training of black pilots in the Air Corps. And, of course, the Air Corps is the descendant of the Air Service. The Air Corps started by law in 1926. And the Air Corps had no black pilots until the Tuskegee Airmen, but after Franklin D. Roosevelt made that 1940 promise, in March of 1941, the 99th Pursuit Squadron was constituted and then activated at Chanute Field, Illinois. It had no pilots yet, but the War Department announced in January of 1941 that the pilots would be trained at Tuskegee. So the 99th was sent to Tuskegee without pilots, the pilots were trained at Tuskegee, and it was mainly, I think, Franklin D. Roosevelt that was pushing for the training of black pilots. There had never been blacks in the Army Air Corps in any shape or form. In fact, when I first applied, they informed me flat out that they had no blacks in it, they had no plans to have blacks in it, and there was no use even applying, and this happened to most of us. And it's very interesting that uh, President Franklin Roosevelt and his wife, Eleanor Roosevelt, were very instrumental in this because on one hand, Roosevelt himself was not a great integrationist, but his wife had tremendous social consciousness. And she actually went to Tuskegee and flew with Chief Anderson, who was our tough uh, test pilot and chief instructor pilot, to uh, find out how it was to fly with a black man. And when she went back, she told uh, Franklin that uh, those men are perfectly marvelous pilots. You ought to give them a chance. Plus the fact the NAACP was talking about suing them. If you were, say, from Chicago or New York, they're being asked to move into a segregated environment for their training. That was controversial at the time because a lot of the black civilian pilots, there was a civilian pilot training program all over the country for blacks and whites, more for whites than blacks, but there were selected universities around the country, six of them, that trained black civilian pilots. One of them was Tuskegee Institute at the time. It's Tuskegee University today. But those pilots were trained partly in Chicago, and there was a question about whether the training of black military pilots would be in Chicago or Tuskegee or some other place. And one of the reasons Tuskegee was chosen was because of the good flying weather. They had a lot more days of good flying weather than Chicago did. 
Another reason was because Tuskegee was already training a lot of civilian pilots, but that argument could be made for Chicago as well. And it was somewhat controversial when black pilots who were trained as civilians in Chicago and other places went down south. It was controversial with the NAACP, too, the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, because they wanted the black military pilot training to be integrated. They wanted the black pilots to train at the white flying training bases. But the War Department insisted that they be trained on a segregated basis, and that's another reason why Tuskegee was chosen. I think the NAACP felt like they had to support the program anyway, though, eventually, because it would be better to train black pilots on a segregated basis in the military than to have no black pilots at all. To what extent did the local community react to having black pilots? That's a good question, too, because Tuskegee at the time was really two communities in one. There was the black part of Tuskegee, which included Tuskegee Institute, During the war years, 1941 and 1945, the majority of the people at Tuskegee were black, but there was a white part of the community that resented the training of the black pilots, and partly for that reason, there was some controversy when the black pilots would enter town. They were more subject to arrest than some of the other people who came into Tuskegee. There were some racial incidents There were two main flight training bases at Tuskegee, one of them at Moton Field where the primary flight training took place, which is the site of Tuskegee Airmen National Historic Site today, and Tuskegee Army Airfield, which was a much larger airfield owned by the War Department where the basic and advanced flight training took place. Those training bases were a few miles to the north and northwest of Tuskegee, the town. I'd say the white people who lived in Tuskegee resented the black training being so close to them. But, of course, the majority of the citizens of Tuskegee, the black citizens, welcomed them. And Tuskegee Institute, of course, welcomed them. How did the Tuskegee Airmen end up at Tuskegee? Well, they were looking for a place to do this. They did not want to put us into the system. The system was in those days that you took primary in one base, basic somewhere else, advanced somewhere else. Rather than have us integrate the services at all, they decided to build a base, a small base, south of Tuskegee Institute, that's where the name comes from, where they would train us. They would give us primary, basic, advanced, and fighter training at the same little uh, installation. And that's how we got it. Well, part of that, I think, was the Tuskegee Institute, which was founded by Booker T. Washington, was a prestigious African-American institution in Alabama. And because of the need to have good weather for training, they said, well, let's set it up at Tuskegee. Although at that time, the NAACP was really opposing this because they wanted the black trainees to go to different places with the white pilots. But the fact is, in uh, uh, retrospect, we can see that uh, Fred Patterson, who was the president of Tuskegee, was right, because if we had sent us individually to various white bases, none of us would have gotten through because of the racism that existed at that time. Were they recruited from all over the country? Yes, they were. They came from all over the country. And at first, the standards were that you had to have a college degree or you had to have at least some college courses 
before you could even enter the cadet pilot training. And during the course of World War II, the requirement for that, not only for the black pilots, but also for the white pilots, was reduced. And there was a college training detachment formed at Tuskegee Institute in coordination with the War Department to help those who did not have college to get some college so that they could be flight cadets in the Army Air Forces. But I'd say they were the cream of the crop. They came from all over the country to Tuskegee for the pilot training. So it was a very competitive process. Yes, it was. And I would say that there were about 2,000 cadets who entered the program and only about 1,000 who completed the program because the standards were high. And sometimes people criticize the training there because the standards were so high, but I think really it was a feather in the cap of the training program. The commander of Tuskegee Army Airfield was Noel Parrish. Colonel Noel Parrish is remembered by most of the Tuskegee Airmen I've met as a very fair man who was really interested in the success of the training program. He also advocated integration of facilities on the base, and he integrated the facilities at Tuskegee Army Airfield. But he was also interested in turning out pilots that were as good as any of the white pilots. He didn't want any of the cadets who didn't show proficiency to get their wings. But the ones who did get their wings, and there were about a 1,000 of them, were as good as any of the white pilots in the country, in his opinion. Were they being trained originally by white instructors? Well, that is true for the military flight training, the basic and advanced flight training that took place at Tuskegee Army Airfield. At first, all of the instructors at Tuskegee Army Airfield for the basic and advanced training were white. And throughout the war, the majority of the flight instructors at Tuskegee Army Airfield were white. However, for the primary flight training, and that took place at Moton Field, which was really owned by Tuskegee Institute at the time, the primary flight training, mostly with biplanes on grass, was dominated by black flight instructors. So if you were a cadet going through the Tuskegee Airmen flight training program, you'd go into primary flight training first at Moton Field with black flight instructors. And then when you finished the primary training, you would go to Tuskegee Army Airfield, where the white flight instructors were, the military flight instructors, and then be trained mostly by white pilot instructors. And that's understandable because there were no black military pilots at first. So the military flight instructors were all white at first. Next, why the Tuskegee Airmen's 332nd Fighter Group are also known as the famous Red Tails. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts, if you dare. Hey, 
Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the campaign moment right now, wherever you're listening. Were they moving specific units like in 42, 43, 44? As a unit got trained, it moved to Europe. How did the next phase of going from training to combat occur? Well, the 99th Fighter Squadron moved to Tuskegee in 1941, got its first pilots in 1942, and then went from Tuskegee directly overseas in the spring of 1943. And when it went overseas, it went to North Africa, and it was attached to a white fighter group because it was the only black flying squadron overseas at the time. In the meantime, the 332nd Fighter Group with three squadrons, the 100, 301st, and 302nd Fighter Squadrons, was activated at Tuskegee. And when it had enough pilots to be operational, then the 332nd Fighter Group and its three squadrons deployed to Michigan, to Selfridge Field, Michigan, from further training, and trained there until early 1944. And then the 332nd Fighter Group and its three squadrons moved to Italy, where the 99th Fighter Squadron was already stationed by that time. In the summer of 1944, then the 99th Fighter Squadron was assigned to the 332nd Fighter Group, which already had three squadrons. The reason for that was they wanted to put all the black flying squadrons under the same group. So that made the 332nd Fighter Group the only black fighter group overseas have four squadrons instead of three. So it had more squadrons, more pilots, more aircraft than the average fighter group in the 15th Air Force. That summer of 1944 was also revolutionary because their mission changed. They were flying for the 12th Air Force, supporting ground forces until summer of 1944 when they were assigned bomber escort missions. They were going to escort B-17 and B-24 bombers and be one of those seven fighter escort groups of the 15th Air Force. And so they changed aircraft. They first flew P-40s and P-39s for the 12th Air Force, 
for the bomber escort missions, they flew P-47s and eventually the P-51s, whose tails they painted red. Why did they do that? I mean, that became very famous. In fact, there was a movie made about it. Yes, it did. And sometimes there's some distortion about that. Sometimes people get the idea that they were the only fighter group over there that decided to paint their tails red and that they were the only fighter group that had distinctive colored tails. That's not true. Every fighter group, especially for those that escorted bombers, had distinctive colors of the tails. The 332nd Fighter Group, of course, had the solid red tails. The 31st Fighter Group, which also flew for the 15th Air Force in escorting bombers, had striped red tails. The 52nd Fighter Group flew P-51s that had yellow tails. And the 325th Fighter Group had tails that were checkerboard pattern black and yellow. So every group had its own distinctive colored tail so that they could be identified, not only for the bomber groups that they were escorting, but also to be able to help distinguish them from enemy fighters. When you were getting into all this, in your mind, who are the people who really shaped the culture and the morale and who became sort of the standard setters for the Tuskegee Airmen? Who are the individuals who you look to and you think, that person really made history? Well, I would say there were a lot of them, and they were not only black, but also white. I'd say Benjamin O. Davis Jr. is by far the most famous of the Tuskegee Airmen, and justifiably so, because he was trained at West Point. His father was the first black general in the Army. He became one of the first black pilots. He was in the first class to graduate from flight training at Tuskegee. He became the commander of the 99th Fighter Squadron. And then he became the commander of the 332nd Fighter Group. Back in World War II, uh, we had an all-Negro fighter group that I commanded, and uh, later a, a medium bombardment group. The success that these two units met, particularly the fighter group in uh, combat in North Africa, Sicily, and Italy, uh, meant that uh, the people who were in it would have a firm place in the United States Air Force. Uh, I think without question, this has to be uh, so very, very important that uh, it's the most important thing that happened to me uh, during my uh, career. Eventually, he became the commander of the first black bomber group, which didn't go overseas, the 477th Bombardment Group. And so he definitely became the most famous of the Tuskegee Airmen. He became the first black general in the Air Force. The first three black generals in the Air Force were Tuskegee Airmen. Daniel Chappie James did not fly overseas in World War II, but he became the first four-star black general in the Air Force and in any of the services. He did fly in Korea and Vietnam. And I'd say Noel Parrish should be given some of the credit, too, because he was the commander of Tuskegee Army Airfield during most of World War II, and he turned the culture around at Tuskegee. The commander of Tuskegee Army Airfield before him, who wasn't there very long, was very unpopular because he segregated all the facilities on the base. He wanted to keep the blacks and whites separated. Noel Parrish was not like that. Noel Parrish improved the morale, and some of the black personnel, if you look at their descriptions of the way things were at Tuskegee Army Airfield. They respected Noel Parrish, and they thought that he was 
truly interested in their success. Sometimes you hear people say, well, the Tuskegee Airmen flight training program was designed to fail. I don't think Noel Parrish believed it was designed to fail. He was determined that it would succeed, and partly because of him, it did succeed. I was very honored to have been able to attend eight Tuskegee Airmen Incorporated National Conventions to meet a lot of the Tuskegee Airmen and also to meet them at other places at Maxwell Air Force Base where I worked for 37 years. They would often have at Air Command and Staff College a gathering of eagles and sometimes, well, often they would have a Tuskegee Airman honored. So Tuskegee Airmen would come to the base Some of them would come to do research. And when I was working on my book, The Tuskegee Airmen Chronology, I was putting in a lot of information that I got from them and from their records. And some of them, who I knew personally, some of them who have passed away, for example, are Bill Holloman. Bill Holloman was a P-51 pilot in World War II, served with the Tuskegee Airmen, flew in Korea and Vietnam, like Charles McGee, and was one of my favorite Tuskegee Airmen, like Charles McGee. Roscoe Brown was one of three Tuskegee Airmen who flew on the Berlin mission, March 24, 1945, and shot down a German jet. There were three Tuskegee Airmen who shot down German jets that day. And Lee Archer, I knew too. Lee Archer shot down four enemy aircraft, one on July 18, 1944, and three of them on October 12th. 1944. He was almost an ace. There were three Tuskegee Airmen who shot down four enemy aircraft and almost became aces because you needed five to be an ace. And there were four Tuskegee Airmen who shot down three in one day. (laughs) But I don't want to leave out the people on the ground. There were people like Jim Shepard, who was a crew chief on the ground, helped arm the aircraft, helped maintain the P-51 aircraft of the 99th Fighter Squadron, helped make sure it had the fuel tanks loaded and made sure the aircraft were worthy of flight and came back safely. So, to go back for a second, the Berlin flight involved P-51s? Yes, it did. There was only one 15th Air Force bombing mission to Berlin because most of the missions against Berlin were by the 8th Air Force in England. The 15th Air Force was stationed in Italy, And the 332nd Fighter Group, the Tuskegee Airmen, were based in Italy, escorting bombers from Ramatelli, their own airfield. On March 24, 1945, the 15th Air Force launched its only mission to Berlin. There were five fighter escort groups of the seven fighter escort groups in the 15th Air Force that took part in the Berlin mission. But the 332nd Fighter Group was one of the groups that took part in the Berlin mission. If you saw the movie Red Tails, and incidentally, I was one of the technical advisors in that movie, even though it wasn't totally historically accurate. But if you saw that movie, it it looks like the 332nd Fighter Group was the only fighter escort group to go to Berlin that day. But that's not true. There were five fighter groups on that mission. The Tuskegee Airmen were made famous in part by HBO's 1995 television movie starring Lawrence Fishburne and Cuba Gooding Jr., and by the Charles Francis 1955 book Tuskegee Airmen, The Men Who Changed the Nation. Hear more about their rise to fame at NewtCenterCircle.com. It's a subscription service where I offer insights and commentary on the issues that matter to me most. 
Join today at NudeCenterCircle.com. Coming up, the Tuskegee Airmen's legacy and how they opened up opportunities for black Americans post-World War II. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts, if you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit Spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the campaign moment right now, wherever you're listening. When the war ended and they began to demobilize, although clearly a number of them stayed in the Air Force, do you have any sense of the adjustments they had to go through or I mean, here they are. These are guys who've done a great job for the country, have been very successful, and have been doing something that they're remarkably good at. Many of them became very successful. I think the general feeling was that when they returned to the United States, they were expecting society to have changed and that they would be accepted and that there would be racial integration, and that's not what happened, not immediately. They were disappointed that they were returning to a segregated environment, especially those that went to the South. But many of them became successful. For example, Roscoe Brown became a leading educator in New York. And those that didn't continue in military service sometimes got involved in the civil rights movement and took part in some of the movement to secure integration, not only in the military, but in society as a whole. Harry Truman issued Executive Order 9981 in 1948, which mandated the desegregation of the military services. The Air Force was already moving in that direction, was already training black and white pilots together 
after Tuskegee closed in 1946, the Air Force became independent from the Army in 1947. And even before the main integration of the black flying units in 1949, they were already training black and white pilots together at Williams Field in Arizona. Part of the legacy was that you could have very successful black units and you could have people, both ground crews and pilots, who were fully competitive with anybody else in the service. Many of the Tuskegee Airmen were disappointed when they got back. Some of them wanted to be civilian pilots for the airlines, and they were not really able to do that. Many of them expressed their disappointment at not being hired by the civilian airlines because a lot of the civilian airlines had all these white transport pilots that they wanted to hire over the Tuskegee Airmen because the ones that served overseas were fighter pilots, and the ones that flew B-25 bombers in training in the 477th Bombardment Group were flying twin-engine planes, but the airlines were looking for people with experience with more airline-type planes like the transports, and there were no Tuskegee Airmen flying transports in World War II. So there was a period there where they had a hard time transferring their knowledge into the private sector. Right. Those that stayed in the military service, especially after the integration of the Air Force, were able to use their talents and skills more readily and rose in the ranks. People like Daniel Chappie James, for example, and Charles McGee and George Hardy. Those that stayed in the service, I think, were generally more successful in aviation than those that wanted to go into the private sector in aviation. When you look at this extraordinary period in American history, what are the lessons you wish young people could take out of the development of the Tuskegee Airmen and their experiences? Well, I'd say the first lesson of the Tuskegee Airmen is given the opportunity, they proved that black men could do whatever white men could do. They could fly the same kinds of aircraft. They could be as successful as the white pilots and also the support personnel on the ground that supported those pilots. I think that's lesson number one. And I think lesson number two is partly their persistence and their demonstration that they could succeed if they applied themselves. They had some opportunity, not as much opportunity as the white pilots, and they helped push open the door for opportunity. For example, at Freeman Field, Indiana, in April of 1945, there was a segregation crisis where the 477th Bombardment Group was training. There were white officers and black trainees, and Robert Selway was the commander of the 477th. He tried to enforce segregated facilities at Freeman Field, which aroused what was called the Freeman Field Mutiny. And there were two rounds of arrests. Some Tuskegee Airmen officers were arrested for entering the white-only officers club, and some of them were arrested for refusing to sign a new base regulation that specified segregated facilities. And incidents like that showed that they pushed for greater opportunity and equality on their bases, especially at Freeman Field. Noel Parrish at Tuskegee Army Airfield already allowed the integration of the base facilities there. So that's another lesson for young people, that sometimes the pursuit of justice needs to be achieved with 
some cost because some of those officers were arrested. When you talk about Freeman Field, for example, was there a sense, this is before Truman issues his executive order, right? So at that point, there's no pressure inside the system. Well, there was, really, because the Army had regulations that were somewhat vague, and it said if you were assigned to a base, you were able to use the officers' club. There was an Army regulation that said that. And it didn't say anything about segregated officers' clubs. In fact, at Tuskegee, when they had a segregated dining facility, some of the black officers at Tuskegee took that Army regulation with them and went to the white side of the dining facility and demanded service. And they got it, partly because they had the regulation and partly because Noel Parrish was the commander of the base and he'd allowed the desegregation of the dining facility at Tuskegee Army Airfield. So there was some within the Army, within the War Department and the Army Air Forces, that base facilities should be integrated. The airmen speak in glowing terms uh, when they talk about Noel Parrish. Some would tear up because Noel Parrish gave them the opportunity to prove themselves in the aviation program. Noel Parrish uh, gave them the respect that was not the norm at that time. There was a lot of indignity faced by the Tuskegee Airmen, especially those from the North who were not used to that. They were in more integrated environments in the North, and when they came South and trained at Tuskegee, uh, there was integration allowed by Noel Parrish on the base, but outside the base, things were closed at Tuskegee to them in the town. Do you think that that's part of why, as we went through the last 70 years, they remained sort of symbolically important because they were proof that, in fact, African Americans could be part of a remarkable unit. They could achieve great things, and therefore, for an awful lot of African-Americans who wanted America to work, they were a symbol that it was possible. That's right. They were, definitely. I'd say of all the military groups in World War II, the Tuskegee Airmen was probably the most successful. Eventually, they became the most famous. I think they deserve their fame. They deserve to be remembered for the opportunities they opened to people of their race and all people, really. And there were other things, too, that they achieved, shooting down 112 enemy aircraft and being the first black flying group in combat, the first black flying group to shoot down enemy aircraft, the first black flying group to escort bombers, and the first black flying group to fly the most advanced fighters in the inventory, P-51s, on the Allied side. One of the great challenges we had is here we are fighting a racist regime in Nazi Germany, while having people get trained in a place that still had segregation. And there had to have been some sense of irony, if you will, if not, not necessarily bitterness, because I think they were having a pretty good time flying and working with aircraft and getting paid a pretty decent amount for the period. But there still had to be this sense of how odd it was in the name of human equality we were shooting down Germans over at Germany, but in fact, we hadn't finished cleaning our situation up here at home. That's very true, and I think a lot of the Tuskegee Airmen felt that way, especially when they returned home. 
and they saw that things hadn't really changed that much. Even though the Army Air Forces and the Army had allowed black pilots to be part of the service, and that had never been done before, that there was still a lot of discrimination. And as I said before, Harry Truman's Executive Order 9981 didn't come out until 1948. So there was still not integration in the American military until a few years after World War II. The Air Force had black flying units at Lockbourne Air Force Base in Ohio, the 332nd Fighter Wing, 332nd Fighter Group and its squadrons, and they were inactivated in 1949, and their personnel were reassigned to formerly all-white units. That was the most significant step in the integration of the Air Force. It took a long time for the American society, especially in the South, to also be integrated. So at that point, you really had the sense, ironically, that finally, in starting in '49. We were going to place you by your rank, not your race, and people were actually going to begin to move. Right, yes. I think a lot of the Tuskegee Airmen who served in the American military had higher expectations about what the Army would allow them to do, partly because of what they were able to achieve during World War II. And the progress continued after World War II, after Tuskegee Army Airfield closed and stopped training black military pilots in 1946. Then black military pilots were being trained at formerly all-white bases. And the integration of the service, as I said, most notably happened in 1949. And during the Korean War, the Army experienced more integration and the Navy started training black pilots as well. So it's all part of the story. The civil rights story didn't really start with Rosa Parks in the 1950s here in Montgomery, but it started really long before that, and the Tuskegee Airmen played a great role in that story. Well, it does say something that both what happened with Rosa Parks, which ironically, much like Jackie Robinson, involved being told to go to the back of the bus, but also the notion that it was in Alabama that the Tuskegee Airmen got trained and became famous. And in that sense, Alabama ultimately, after a great deal of struggle, became one of the places where we began to finally become an integrated society. That's right. The Tuskegee story is celebrated at Tuskegee Airmen National Historic Site, which is at Moton Field, where the primary flight training took place during World War II. And it's a site I would recommend to anybody coming from other places to visit Alabama, they might want to visit Tuskegee Airmen National Historic Site. Well, listen, thank you very, very much for doing this. It's very helpful. Well, I appreciate the opportunity to talk with you and to share what I've learned about the Tuskegee Airmen, especially from the years I worked as a historian at the Air Force Historical Research Agency at Maxwell Air Force Base. I'm Charles Edward McGee, Air Force retired, and uh, Originally from, I was born in Cleveland, Ohio in 1919. Tuskegee Airmen are black pilots, mechanics and support people who, when our country declared war against Hitler, came forward and uh, dispelled the biases and generalizations that because of the color of our skin we couldn't support our country in a technical area. 
our task was to keep the air clear of German fighters that were uh, destroying many of our bombers. You know, we thought we had enough guns on the B-17s and B-24s to protect them. That wasn't so, and that's why the escort work began. We also destroyed a lot of the Germany's war-making potential on the ground. The Pittsburgh Courier came out and said, no, we're, this is a double victory activity for black Americans fighting against Hitler in Europe and also fighting against racism here at home. One thing, personally, folks say, well, how'd you face that? I said, well, I grew up learning that, uh, you know, you treat others like you want to be treated. So important. And then realizing that the value lessons that sustained us are just as important to, for the young people today and what they face for America's future and preserving the freedoms we claim we all so much enjoy. Don't let the circumstances be an excuse for not achieving. We could have very easily, oh, they don't like me, they don't want me, and gone off in the corner with our head bowed. That's not the American way. You can read more about the Tuskegee Airmen on our show page at newtsworld.com. Newt's World is produced by Gingrich 360 and iHeartMedia. Our executive producer is Debbie Myers, and our producer is Garnsey Sloan. The artwork for the show was created by Steve Pendley. Please email me with your comments at newt at newtsworld.com. If you've been enjoying Newt's World, I hope you'll go to Apple Podcasts and both rate us with five stars and give us a review so others can learn what it's all about. On the next episode of Newt's World, Mary Ball Washington was a resilient widow who single-handedly raised five children and ran a large farm at a time when most women's duties were relegated to household matters. She raised her eldest son, George, to become one of the world's greatest leaders and the first president of the United States. In his new book, author Craig Shirley explores George Washington's family and upbringing and how his mother shaped his life. I'm Newt Gingrich. This is Newt's World. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. 
We are the voice of NASCAR. The green flag is in the air, and we are underway. The great American race. The Motor Racing Network. NASCAR Cup, Xfinity, and Craftsman Truck Series Racing. Live on your hometown radio station and MRN or NASCAR.com. Martinsville, Talladega, the Chicago Street Course. We have the side-by-side action and last lap passes for the win. Photo finishes. Ryan Blaney will win. The voice of NASCAR, the Motor Racing Network. Work. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350 plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play.